0: Well hello from Maui, Hawaii, good afternoon, good morning from Hawaii, and good evening for our friends in Europe and elsewhere, nice to be with you, and uh, I hope you have a nice Labor Day holiday weekend, here we go into what is fall for many folks, today is the 13th of September 2009, if you're listening live or by replay. And our topic today in the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School is the seven tongues of God. It's a odd uh, phrase, but what it refers to is a psychedelic trip, a magic mushroom or sacred mushroom trip that Dr. Timothy Leary took in the early 1960s in Mexico. He described it later in an article as the most profound religious experience he had ever had, and out of it came a set of seven questions that any one of us can use as a kind of a personal inventory to help us find our way through religious experience, or spiritual experience, if you will, because... Maybe that's better said because the whole idea of using mystical or spiritual experiences to better understand yourself and your relationship with the universe, who's going to need to do that except somebody who has the desire but finds that religion doesn't really work for them or doesn't really fit? or is too juvenile or elementary and just doesn't um, doesn't answer the questions that so many of us have. I think a lot of folks uh, have a sense that religion is sort of elementary school and that it was fine for the last couple of thousand years, but it needs updating uh, to bring it into the 20th century. And some churches... Uh, and synagogues, and mosques, and temples, and religious traditions have been better at that than others. Uh, some are positively medieval. I'll let you decide which those are, depending on your experience of religion. But you know, for, for for people like, well, I'll speak for myself, for people like me, and perhaps uh For folks like you who are here because you're interested in personal and spiritual development, but you can't quite find a fit in religion, we're going to have to rely on our personal experience of life in general, of our meditation, prayer-like states, of particular epiphanies that we have had, revelations and other so-called spiritual experiences to bring us closer to an understanding that gives us some peace of mind and creates a a new rung on the ladder that we can stand on to go a little higher and reach farther still, and then you continue to climb that ladder, uh, uh, maturing as you go. And finding, I would hope, a certain peace or comfort in understanding that your experience of yourself and your life uh, and your aspirations to know self and relationship with all that is spiritually, that that is indeed unfolding for you and that it's reliable and, in your life anyway, provable and so you're not interested in starting your own church. I don't know. Maybe you are. But, <laughs> but but these are people that throughout history have been called mystics. We are men and women who, again, stand outside uh, the dogma, the ritual and ceremony of organized religion, either completely or to some extent in a search for questions that religion doesn't answer. And these this little essay, these seven questions that Dr. Leary calls the seven tongues of God we're going to review today, I just came across them, and I i must say I knew Dr. Leary very well. I interviewed Timothy Leary on my radio program eight or ten times over the years, uh, starting in 1977, the first time I interviewed him, and I, to me... 1977 Timothy Leary was like a rock star and um, I was really uh, it was like interviewing the Beatles or something Uh, he knew the Beatles right but um, I got to know him better and better eventually um, visiting him in his home Um, I saw him not long before he he passed over before he died and uh, got to know him pretty well a lot of people did Um, I'm sure there were hundreds of people that knew Timothy Leary better than I but I must say I I very much enjoyed the man certainly he had his eccentricities and sometimes he was just so out, out there so to speak that nobody really knew quite what to make of him, even his closest friends would sometimes raise an eyebrow at things Timothy would say but you know, he called himself a, uh, a cheerleader for change. One of my favorite self-descriptive phrases. He called himself a cheerleader for change, and and I always thought of him as being sort of like those uh, medieval uh, court jesters, you know, uh, who would educate, uh, edify, uh, satirize, um, uh, and just sort of be the the comedian of the royal court but nevertheless speak very profound wisdom um, veiled by the humor and the, and the parodies that they were doing he always seemed to me to be this very wise though by appearance rather a fool and yet still a very very wise man if you would consider that that's the role he played, that he was just being silly and foolish often to create an altered state of awareness, to to shock you, to stun you, to surprise you into an altered state where, whoa, you might get one of those little epiphanies, or you would call them hits, little hits of awareness, and uh, I, so I, bottom line, I liked him, and I miss him, and He's left a lot of wonderful literature, uh, half a dozen books, and some of the more scholarly uh, stuff that he's left behind, I think, merits review. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the seven questions, part of a a personal inquiry or inventory, if you will, of uh, who we really are as spiritual beings. And... uh, uh, then as we work through these, um, we'll, I want to say go to the phones, but we'll, we'll, we'll check those of you who are listening by telephone to see if any of you want to be unmuted one at a time so that you can speak to me live, and uh, also those of you who would rather use the web. I hope we get some people that are over their, their bashfulness, because everybody's been texting and submitting questions on the Internet, But uh, few have taken advantage of our ability to use the telephones as well. Um, And so I know you're bashful. We average 25, 30, 35 people here. So it's a nice-sized class. I'm happy with the size of the class. And I anticipate in the not-too-distant future having several hundred people and maybe even thousands of people at some point. I don't know. But... um, I would think that it's going to be a lot easier to do it now than in the future, you know. Uh, Anyway, I'm going to be doing this until, uh, as long as I have breath, I'm going to be doing this program. So uh, there's no hurry in that regard. Let me take a little sip of my coffee here before it gets cold. Mm. Coffee this morning. And we'll begin our. uh, It's really seven questions that he asks, and let me make it clear as we get into these seven tongues of God, or these seven questions, that philosophically these are unanswerable. Now, uh, a silly person or a cynic would say, well, then why ask it? Why spend time trying to answer a question that cannot be answered? Well, I think most people in this class know the answer to that because it's worth it. Because the process of trying to answer the question is edifying, is enlightening, uh, is revealing. And to care about this material, again, to understand yourself as a spiritual being, not merely a human being having a spiritual experience or another spiritual experience or, oh yeah, then there was this other spiritual experience. But instead, to be a spiritual being having a human experience is very different. Um, Thielhard de Chardin said, you are not a human being who possesses a soul, you are a soul incarnated as a human being. Of course, that, that's a basic mystical position that you are a soul that has incarnated. This, as we discussed a few weeks ago, is high heresy from the point of view of the Catholic Church and most Protestants as well. The pre existence of the soul is a taboo subject. You're not even supposed to talk about it even though many of the early church fathers in the 2nd and 3rd century AD did believe in the preexistence of the soul the idea that all human souls exist in a reservoir so to speak and increasing numbers of them incarnate at any given time you got to have human uh, conception sexual intercourse and conception to create a physical vehicle for the soul to move into but there then is the question is it a pre-existing soul that extends itself into incarnation uh, or does as the Catholic Church teaches and many uh, Protestants still believe does God make uh, or fashion a new soul uh, every time a physical being is conceived in utero and then tucked that soul inside uh, it's very different and the church freaks out at the idea that your soul may already be in heaven, that's the big heresy and that's why so many mystical Christians were killed uh, during the crusades and the inquisitions I harp on this because It's very important, I think, for for Christians to know that their history of crusades and inquisitions was not simply aimed at pagans and heathens and and Muslims and and other non-believers, but at Christians as well, who didn't toe the line. Uh, We talked last week or the week before about the Rhineland mystics, Uh, The early small-t theosophists, going back to the early 1300s, the early 14th century. And many of them, Catholic priests themselves and teachers, found guilty of heresy by (laughs) the church, the Inquisition, because they didn't teach it quite right. And this is the big heresy, that your soul already stands above you and is available to you. Uh, through meditation, through contemplation that we could access our higher self our own over soul again just drives most orthodox Christians crazy they just really uh, despise this whole concept at least they're supposed to Um, so I should go to if I were a, a Catholic I should go to confession for having said what I just said because it's such a horrible sin to suggest that you are an extension of your soul, that you're a spiritual being primarily, and the human being is just a a role or a character uh, in a sense that you're playing. So here, let's take these one at a time. And because they are so profound, I just want you to know that these are not meant to be answered. Uh, They're intended for you to make an attempt to answer, And um, then a week later, do the same thing. (laughs) And for the rest of your life, ponder these questions or similar questions in your aspirations to understand yourself better, to develop the truth of who you are, and to become more God-goddess-oriented, to be more like your sense of divinity which you begin to experience not just think about in your head and then struggle with belief but to experience is a very different matter altogether hard to deny an experience especially if it's repeatable so I'd like to suggest you write these down, I'm going to read all seven of them very simply and then we'll go back and review them a bit and then we'll go to your uh, live questions and comments here the first tongue of God these again are Timothy Leary's seven tongues of God the first primary existential question is the ultimate power question the word is power right? P-O-W-E-R the power question and Leary puts it this way what is the ultimate power What is the basic energy underlying the universe? The second question is the life question. What is life? Isn't that a George Harrison song? Didn't (laughs) didn't George Harrison do a song called What is Life? Um, You could have power without life, I suppose. Could you have life without power? I don't know. We'll come back through these in just a minute so first is power, second is life third is in a logical order the human being what is this thing to be human you're part animal but you get your own kingdom because we can do things many many things that animals cannot do uh, primarily to reflect upon our thinking uh, to form language and to use tools um, to laugh, to have humor. Uh, Though this is somewhat debatable, there are some animals that are approaching this, but primarily animals act according to instinct and a so-called herd mentality. They're very psychic, if you will, and very aware of the group mind. Human beings have this, but have developed over this Uh, central brain this reptilian brain a neocortex which is a brain that allows us to reflect upon our thoughts and our feelings most of us don't do it right but we have the capacity to do that so we'll come back and talk about in the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, and the animal kingdom why do we need a fourth kingdom just for human beings on top of that why are we not simply animals Um, the fourth question is the awakening question or the, I'm sorry, the awareness question okay, nice Freudian slip there the awareness question, how do we sense what is the nature of experience, how do you know anything, this is epistemology the awareness question, we'll come back to this Five. What is the ego? Who am I? How is it that I am different from you? And how do I know you? How do I judge you? You could tell me your name and what you do for a living and what you believe. Uh, Maybe I could do the same thing, but internally, the all of us, certainly most of us, I I always. I always come up short when I hear myself say all, oh, like, be careful. There may be people that don't ask these questions of themselves, but I think the the vast majority of humanity at some point in their lives, and I think for many of us, quite often throughout our lives, we're saying, well, who am I? Why do I care? What do I care about? Why am I here? And, and what in the world am I for, but The ego question, number five, is really, who am I? Number six is, what are these emotions that I have? Okay. Uh, When you meet somebody on the street or call somebody on the phone and you say, how are you? You're asking them how they feel, not what they think. You ever thought about that? You ever felt that out? You know, how you doing is a request, not for what have you been thinking, although sometimes that's the way people will answer it. But, hey, how do you feel inside? How are you feeling? Right? A very different state than what are we thinking, yet both bear upon the being of humanness, human beings. So six is the emotional question, and seven, which I think is quite funny, actually, in, in keeping with Timothy's sense of humor, is the ultimate escape question,
1: how do I get out of here?
0: <laughs> this is, uh, we talked about the uh, fundamentals of Buddhism a month or two ago, and this, of course, is uh, the, great, the great question in the East among uh, the Hindus and, and uh, Buddhists, uh, which is, uh, how do I escape this suffering? That life is full of suffering, adversity, and conflict, and anger, and fear, and enmity, and hatred, and vengeance, and all this turmoil. And a lot of us just, hey, I, I, I want to get out of here. How, how do I escape? If not, you know, suicide. If not, killing myself. Because there's a lot of beauty around me, and there's people here I love, and and. I don't want to check out I just want to escape the suffering and the pain Uh, what do I do about that and um, one of the questions Leary asks in his essay on the seven tongues of God is uh, uh, regarding the escape is the use of anesthesia which could be uh, like Michael Jackson using propofol to go to sleep uh, until he you know, goes to the final rest. Or um, for most people, um, having a drink, um, alcohol, you know, or a smoking pot or any one of a number of um, drugs and substances that in most cases are not treated very ceremonially. Um, If you treat marijuana as a sacrament, as a medicine, uh, the Native American Indians, so-called, uh, the indigenous people of North America certainly treated tobacco as if it were a sacrament. They were not hooked on tobacco. They didn't smoke 20, 30, 40 cigarettes a day, right? It was a big deal to break out the peace pipe, whatever it was they put in it. So these are the seven questions, power, life, the human being, awareness, the ego, the emotional question, and the whole idea of escape, the ultimate escape. The seven existential questions that came out of this, as I say, this magic mushroom trip that Leary did in Mexico in 1960. A friend of his was a professor at a university in Mexico City, and he gave Leary the the psilocybin mushrooms, and he ate seven of them. Maybe that's why he came up with seven questions. He ate seven of these mushrooms and uh, had this profound religious experience. It's not surprising, then, that many of these psychedelic drugs have been used by indigenous peoples around the world uh, as uh, sacraments, Uh, whether it's... uh, uh, just mentioning tobacco here that's not such a psychedelic drug but certainly the native american was aware of cannabis uh, it was about the only thing george washington grew was hemp and uh, they ate it and uh, made milk out of it and used it for fiber uh, wound it into rope and made cloth out of it and uh, Uh, You can squeeze it for the oil and get energy out of it. It's an incredible product, which is part of the reason it's illegal. It's not just a conspiracy of of, uh, alcohol industries getting together to outlaw pot in the mid-30s after thousands of years of nobody having any problem. Your your grandmother probably made tea out of cannabis. Uh, They used to sell it over the counter for or the longest time centuries and uh grandma would go down and make a uh, soporific is the word that was used back in the day a soporific was a little tea that grandma and grandpa would make to uh, ease their nerves so to speak and uh, soporific really means to allow somebody to sleep as a sleep aid and uh So lots of folks do that, too. They don't want a smoke pot, but they'll make a tea out of it or or bake it into cookies or brownies or whatever. A lot of the cannabis clubs are selling cookies and brownies now. Uh, So there are so many. The psilocybin uh, mushroom, the peyote of the cactus buttons, um, ayahuasca in Central and South America, uh, various drugs in Africa, um, opium, uh, out of which uh, heroin is made. Where we get into trouble with each of these drugs is where the the natural medicines, if you will, are refined and made into um, some sort of, well, like a powder. Like uh, cocaine is a great example. The Indians of Bolivia and Peru have been... Chewing on cocaine, coca leaves, um, to help them climb in high altitudes and, and work in the thin air, and uh, no problems, right? But when you refine it and make it into a powder and start to smoke it or, you know, toot it up your nose, it's a very different problem. Same thing, it's one thing to smoke opium, it's another thing to mainline heroin same drug but it's when it gets refined that's what westerners tend to do with things <laughs> we, we want to refine it we want an extract we want a tincture we want something much more powerful out of it and uh, that's where we get into trouble so indigenous peoples abused chemicals uh, naturally occurring from the garden right uh, from time out of mind to, to at least alter if not expand their awareness that's the whole purpose so here comes what Timothy would certainly argue is a very significant and legitimate religious experience out of ingesting these mushrooms and out of that came these seven questions so let's just take a look at them because again I can't answer these questions for you. I'm just introducing them to you as, well, as I've already said, as open-ended questions that you can use repeatedly in your life to, uh, it's like, it's like spiritual calisthenics. It's a spiritual workout. You know, you do a couple of reps, and then you rest, and then do another set, a few more reps, and then you rest, and. You develop the muscle. Well, spirituality is not a muscle, but it responds in a similar way. The more you work at it, the more open you become, the more you see, and the more you understand, even if what you're understanding is difficult to put into words. Maybe, in some cases, impossible to put into words because there are no words Not enough people have had the experience to even begin to coin uh, the words for it. Mm. Speaking of my drug of choice, sometimes tea, today it's coffee. All right, so let's look at power, first of all. Um, The idea of power existing brings up, uh, for me anyway, and for many people who have studied the mystical traditions of the world Um, the idea of power as even standing above or what's the word I want not primary to but necessary for the existence of the first element of the trinity which is the father aspect now Christianity tends to be a Trinitarian religion. Within Christianity, there are Unitarians who believe that there is but one God. And even the Trinitarians will say, well, there is but one God, but this God has three parts. Uh, Christians have emphasized the role of Jesus and equating the Son to the Father, in such a way as to create a lot of unnecessary confusion. So the Father aspect of God is easily lost in Christianity. Um, I know someone that teaches, for example, in a Catholic school called Christ the King. And I said to her not long ago, I said, well, what does that mean? And she didn't really, she just sort of mumbled, and Christ is the king of us all and our personal savior. And I said, well, wait a minute. If Christ is the king, who is the father? I thought Christ was the son, which would be the prince. Is not Christ the prince of peace? Now you're making him the king. And if you're going to ignore the father and say the son and the father are one, then why did Christ teach people to pray to the Father Christ only taught one prayer and it starts out our Father who art in heaven hallowed be his name Christ did not talk about himself other than to say that he was the way right, or a way an approach to the Father aspect yet Christianity has conflated the Father and the Son Well, I'm going to go a step farther and say that in the mystical traditions of the world, you will often come across an idea that there is a Godhead that is higher than the Father aspect. And that the Father, uh, the big daddy in all of this, the chief God, if you will, and the Son, who many would argue correlates with the soul And the so-called Holy Spirit, which is the mother aspect, I mean, come on, father, son, and fill in the blank. Father, son, one missing. What would that be? Father, son, mother. (laughs) Remember those IQ tests? Uh, What's missing in this group? Well, mom is missing. But, of course, you can't have women in the equation. They're not divine. So the church pulled the mother out and made it father, son, and Holy Spirit, or Catholics say, Holy Ghost. But that's the mother aspect. That's the body of God. That would be Mother Earth, the physical universe being the body of God. The Christos, or the Buddha nature, the Son, or the Prince, would be the heart of God, right? The, The offspring of Father Spirit and Mother Matter. That's what that trinity is all about. But to argue the question of power, the first of these ultimate existential questions, is to say maybe there is a Godhead or an ultimate capital P power that this trinity or this father aspect or the one God, whatever name you have for him or Her, it, draws upon. Maybe there is this cosmic blast furnace uh, that is invisible and unseen but is the source of the Big Bang, the source of God's awareness and the source of all that is the English word for this is often Godhead uh, Catholics, if you want to check your uh, uh, some of your church documents and old prayers, there is an anesthesian creed that goes back uh, uh, I think about a thousand years to the, like Thomas Aquinas era, 9th, 10th, 11th century, um, maybe even older, the Anesthesian Creed, where there is a reference to the Godhead being other than the Father aspect or the Son aspect of God. So, what is the source of God's power? And Leary's questions are what is the basic energy? or power that underlies the universe, the ultimate power, the power that moves the galaxies, but also, on a subatomic level, what is the power in the nucleus of the atom? What is the power that initiates all motion, of all subatomic particles, all the way up through the largest particles, to these incredibly massive Uh, Black holes, for example, and the neutron stars, uh, if you could imagine, a teaspoon of a neutron star would weigh millions of tons, literally, if you could find a scale heavy enough to weigh it, because all of the space between the electrons and the protons and the neutrons is gone, and this whole atomic structure has collapsed upon itself. Even that massive, dense thing is being moved. And everything in the universe is moving, oddly, in two remarkable ways. Everything in the universe is moving away from everything else in the universe. It's like if you blew up a balloon halfway and took a magic marker and on the outside of the balloon put dots that were spaced one inch apart and then finished blowing up the balloon, well, the dots that you put on the balloon are now going to be farther apart. Same thing would go for anything inside the balloon. As it expands, everything is moving away from everything else. That's what's happening in our universe. Every galaxy, every cluster of galaxies... And the entire universe itself is expanding in all directions. There has to be some power behind that, right? They gave it the initial push, the initial Big Bang. But there's more. We now understand in the last decade from science, remember, science? We used to believe in science. Well, science <laughs> scientists have proven... That not only is every particle, every galaxy in the universe moving away from everything else, it's all red shifted, no blue shift, nothing's coming toward you. You look at the sky, everything is moving away from you and, and away from everything else in the sky. Not only is that true, but number two, we now understand the rate of its movement is accelerating Every particle in the universe moving away from every other particle in the universe is accelerating the rate at which it moves away. Faster and faster and faster and faster, this universe expands. You see, creation, we could assume from this, is not just something that happened once, but it's an ongoing process. You don't look at a flower, uh, a rose bush. And think about creation as something that happened once. You say, no, this rosebush has its seasons. And look, this little bud over here, well, soon it's going to start to open, like this flower over here. And you see this flower over here in the rosebush, how it's big and, and almost totally opened up. Well, it used to be this bud over here. And then... The leaves are going to dry up, the petals of the flowers will fall off. You know, it was Plato that talked uh, 2,500 years ago about the ideation of the rose being in the mind of God, not in the rose bush. He said, There's no truth in that rose because every day you go out and it's different, it's changing, <laughs> it's growing, it's unfolding. So, therefore, there can be no truth in something that is constantly changing. There has to be a Godhead. There has to be a higher power where truth resides. That's why Platonic philosophy is often called idealism, because Plato said truth is ideation and exists only in the mind of God. So the truth of the rose is in the mind of God. You see a horse, a brown horse running. Plato would remind you the truth of the horse is in the mind of God and the color of the horse is in the mind of God, though there is a physical horse of that color running through the field over there. So, uh, to ask the great existential questions, you really have to begin with power. Some people, religious philosophers, will equate power with divine will the 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 again the father aspect of god if the son aspect of god the soul corresponds to god's love divine love then the father aspect would have to be divine will okay so that just like a human being that has a mental emotional and a physical nature the trinity the spiritual trinity is like a higher correspondence of the mental, emotional, and physical nature. That would be the Father, the Son, and the Mother aspect, or the Father, the Son, and so-called Holy Spirit, divine will, divine love, and the universe as a body of divinity, the physical universe. Okay, I think that's very cool, and I'm stunned at how many people have never thought of that, especially Catholics. I mean, you guys ought to know, because when you make the sign of the cross and you touch your forehead, that's where your brains are, right behind the forehead, you say, in the name of the Father, and then you touch your heart, saying, in the name of the Son, and you touch your shoulders, in the name of the Mother aspect, or the Holy Spirit. So, there you can see the higher trinity and the lower correspondence in man, the mental, emotional, and physical nature. I think that's enriching. I don't know why they don't teach that to you. Uh, I came up through the Catholic, uh, uh, not the school system, but I went to catechism and I had to be indoctrinated for First Communion and confession because it five years old I was such a sinner I had to learn to confess what a naughty boy I was and my naughty naughty thoughts and uh, I was even confirmed until I just bailed at about 15 years old I think I was 14 or 15 and I finally said I'm out of here I can't do this this is this is not uh, these are not the answers I'm looking for so that just touches on the question of power The second is the question of life. What is life? And Leary says, so where does life begin? How does it begin? How is it evolving or unfolding, and where is it going? These are the fields of genesis, of biology, of evolution, and uh, genetics. Not only genesis, but genetics. Same root word, but very different words. Uh, What is life? Can there be power without life? Yeah, of course. So it's not enough just to ask yourself about the ultimate power behind all things. What is life? Well, again, the mystic might suggest that power corresponds to this Godhead, this cosmic blast furnace that is the source of all things. Life would have to begin with the awareness of a so-called God, the consciousness of the all that is, if you could imagine such such a thing, this is more likely to correspond, I would say, with divine will than the first question of power. But again, who's to argue the wrong, <laughs> who's right or wrong with this stuff? It's these are not that kind of question where we're just helping you to feel around and find what fits best for you at this time in your life you may be dead certain today on the meaning of some of these and come back in a year and find that you've changed your mind to a large extent so I'm just suggesting that it could be that God from a Unitarian or Trinitarian tradition is life the one life the one thing the one God problem is again we have So many people, whatever their religion, whatever their belief system, who, in their mind's eye, think of the one God as having a shape and a body and a form like a man. And this is what so many people are beginning to object to, which is this cartoon Uh, uh, elementary school approach to divinity, that God is a man that wears a toga, and of course he's a white guy with a beard and G over the pocket and probably smokes only the best Cuban cigars. Look, if it's like 500 A.D., and and you're completely uneducated and you can't read and you can't write and there are no books to read even if you could. Well, okay. I mean, if that's your belief system, that's fine. Uh, to think of God as a man in the sky who's just very far away and lives beyond the stars. Uh, okay. If it's 1,500 years ago maybe or even a a thousand years ago or maybe even 500 years ago but in the 21st century in the 21st century in the year 2009 with rocket ships to the moon and, and robot vehicles on Mars and the Hubble telescope looking into the corners of the universe it is a beautiful and 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 mysterious place, this universe. And the, and the farther we look with telescopes, the more magnificent and beautiful, the more inspiring and awesome it becomes. Science doesn't always answer questions. It often raises even more questions. But the idea that if we could only see a little bit farther with those telescopes, we'd see this big palace with streets of gold friends again these are allegories these are metaphors this is symbolism and so at some point all religion has to grow up and take the truth that is found in religion retain that and bring that forward while we drop the literal or if you will fundamentalist Literal views um, that uh, had existed for so long and were necessary because people were basically unsophisticated. Well, it's time to get sophisticated. And, and somewhere in the seventh or eighth or ninth grade, somewhere in middle school, we should have had an English teacher that told us about symbolism. And then you took some English lit and some American lit in high school and maybe college, and you studied even more the allegory and the metaphor of symbolism. I always get a kick out of the born-again saying, "Wow, you're supposed to take the New Testament literally. We believe that's the Word of God. You have to take it literally. Really? Well, how about that passage in Matthew that says, Don't take any of it literally. (laughs) You have to take that literally. And understand it says, I think it's the 13th chapter. I'm not much of a Bible beater here, but I think the 13th chapter of Matthew, somewhere in Matthew, uh, it says very clearly, uh, somebody asks Christ, why do you teach in these parables? He says, well, because this is difficult material. And it's how else am I going to reach the masses but by telling them these stories. So even in the book, it says don't take this stuff literally. Okay, Uh, Proving that, again, most Christians never read the Bible. I think they'd be stunned if they did. All right. Third question is the question of the human being. So if the first is power and the second is life, what is life? And I'm suggesting life may be what people call God then the human being is one of the life forms, one of the forms of life, or the expressions of God. This is difficult to discuss, because, again, we have a view of not only God separated from its creation, and very far away at that, but the idea of the human being within that universe being separated from God and suffering that alienation and separation as if God is, again, very, very far away. And by all appearances, if we rely only on our physical senses and sensation, every form is separated from every other form. And if you bring two objects together into the same place at the same time, they're not going to occupy the same space at the same time. If They're solids. Gases could. Uh, liquids could. But you're driving your car down the freeway, you want yourself to be in a separated form. <laughs> right? And so there's a certain reality to that. The problem is that we still think of man and all other Things or forms, the animals and the plants and the minerals as having been created by God as if God could then stand outside its creation now, if you're an artist and you paint a painting how could you keep yourself out of the painting, yeah? if you're a singer and you sing soulfully the song that has meaning to you maybe one you've written yourself, how could you stand back from your creation and not exist some part of you in that song, you see? So whatever we express of ourselves, whatever exists, we're going to be in that expression. Therefore, wise women and men have said, how could the creator stand outside of its creation? And why would it want to? It sounds like a sales pitch from a church that says, you don't know the way, and God is so far away, you need us. Oh, by the way, drop a 20 in this basket here, would you? You need us to help you find the way. We'll show you. And the church inserts itself between you and the divine, attempts to insert itself where there is no space or place to insert anything. You're not separate. I like the line from Sufi mysticism that says, that what you call a god is closer than your own breath. You see? So, uh, a word that's been used in philosophy is, uh, instead of create, is to extend. If you think of the creator extending itself, not as a person, but as a power, as a force... As a consciousness, as an awareness, as a life force expressing itself, extending itself into creation, then that cat over there is not a cat created by God. It is a form that is currently connected to and could not be separated from the Most High, that represents the catness of God. And these dogs over here are not separated objects. They are the dogness of God, the part of God that needs to be a dog and express itself as a dog. As a human being would paint a painting of clouds, from a place of trying to experience itself as a cloud. What would it be like to be a cloud and, and and to put that quality into the cloud? How could anyone who is creative exclude itself from the creation? This is profound to mystics and, again, difficult to explain. You sort of have to experience And I'm using cats and dogs because that's where I first experienced it. I was watching uh, one of my cats stretching and yawning in this little sliver of sunlight that was coming between the Venetian blinds. Back when I lived in L.A., this was years ago, it was early in the morning, it was sort of cold, and this one little sliver of sunlight is coming through the shades and the cat finds it sunshine to try and get warm and then does one of those kitty yoga stretches and yawns and all of a sudden I saw it that's that's God as a cat God didn't create cats God is cats but I don't know how else to say that I don't know how to communicate you have to have done the preparation necessary to have a sense of what I'm talking about. Maybe you have it, maybe you have it, and maybe you're light years beyond where I am. Maybe I sound juvenile to you. But that's still a long way away from God as some sort of wizard waving a magic wand and suddenly, poof, the world is populated by cats. Right? Or dogs, or willow trees, or roses, or planets, or stars, or anything else that need to be, that need to express. This is sort of the way I approach these first few questions. And then number four is awareness. And this is uh, this is Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Um, my friend, the late Dr. David Viscott, would say, he challenged Descartes, how about I feel, therefore I am. David would say and Leary says of this question of awareness how does man sense how do we experience how do we know anything how do you know this you say well we have words somebody told me well how do you know the meaning of the words how do you know that you understand which meaning applies in which context and this is epistemology but it's even neurology how does the brain interpret these vibrations these frequencies of energy that hit the eyeball as colored light and then the brain organizes it, accounts for the parallax between the eyeballs gives you depth of field and depth of perception from the stereoscopic view and then you got two ears you even have two nasal passages and then in addition to the to the olfactory, to the to, to the ability to sense fragrance, you have the gustatory, the ability to taste. You have the the uh, kinesiology, the kinesthetics of being able to touch and feel tactily, texture and temperature. Plus the senses of seeing and hearing, which we rely on most. But awareness stands above all of this. You see. In Hinduism, there is a distinction made between awareness and consciousness, in that awareness is usually capitalized as the awareness of the Most High, the Most Divine, and consciousness would be that awareness from a particular point of view. So the individual is conscious, and the totality is aware. But in the West... We tend to use the words interchangeably because we're still trying to wake people up in the West. Most people, actually, in the world, even most people, still are driven by thoughts and feelings. They do. They are not aware, awake, or conscious enough to know that they are human beings, not animals. That they have intuition, which trumps instinct the herd mentality, and we can reflect upon our feelings and we can reflect upon our thoughts and we can engender the on-second thought experience. We can promote that and say, now hold on a minute. Hold on. Take a breath. Relax. Are you sure those are the only choices we have, Michael? Is there a third choice? And if there's a third choice, is there a fourth option? Are you aware of a fifth possibility? Are you conscious that if there's five choices, there just might be six or seven? That there are variations and permutations and combinations? Or are we going to be normal people and do it because I felt like it? Why'd you do that? I felt like it. Why'd you say that? I felt like it. Why? You want to fight? You want to take this outside? You see, we're not very aware yet. Part of what's so exciting about being alive in this period of human history is watching us slowly wake up. This is not my beautiful wife. This is not my beautiful home. How did I get here? <laughs> How did all of this happen? Uh, let's see, it's about seven or eight minutes after. Let me wrap the last of these up real quickly. Again, we're not going to answer these, and I'd rather use the time we have to to go to the telephones and to your text questions as well. So these uh, initial uh, existential questions, uh, the ultimate power, the nature of life, who or what is this human being thing, and the awareness of the human being, this leads to five, which is ego or identity. Who am I really? Now that I'm starting to work with this, guy, this idea of life leading to a special kingdom called human beings, and that leads to awareness, number five is ego. And ego is simply the part of your awareness that identifies with the separated self, with the mortal self. Ego is not eternal. That would be soul. So ego is a word that is designed, maybe not by Freud himself, who coined it, but the use generally in this day and age, especially in this context, is to be a counterpose to the soul in terms of identifying the two basic parts. In other words, within this ultimate... Oneness, this one life, this one thing. Number two, what is life? Within this one life, there are two of you. There is the awareness, this is question number four, which is eternal and infinite. This is the higher self. This is the soul. This is the love of God. This is, why Christ said, you're all children of the Most High. And then there's the much more common and troubling aspect, which is the part of the self that identifies with the separated form or the fleshy being. That's the ego. The difference is the awareness of self is very inclusive and love-based. It's a you-and-me awareness. The ego is very separate and exclusive and as a you-or-me worldview. I think that's very handy to keep in mind. Which of me is which? Well, if you're coming from fear, you're in your ego place. If you're coming from compassion and forgiveness and harmony, love and peace and justice and truth and all of that, a you-and-me world, can't we just all get along and harmonize here? That's the awareness of the higher self or the so called oversoul. Number six is the emotional question uh, What do my feelings have to do with all of this? You know, we have
1: schools,
0: kindergarten through the 12th grade, and then colleges and universities and postgraduate degrees. For the mind, for the mental nature, for that quality of intelligence, but we know virtually nothing about our emotional intelligence. In fact, the phrase, emotional intelligence, or the idea of having an EQ as well as an IQ is barely 15 years old. That's how new this stuff is. Most people are not very intelligent emotionally, though They have great capacity. Same thing. Most of us are not living up to our mental capacity. Well, we're really, really not living up to our emotional capacity because we don't have schools to teach emotional intelligence yet. You want to start one? Uh, (laughs) We could say this is, in a way, the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. The history, the tradition of mystery schools have been to include some training on emotional management and emotional intelligence. But suffice to say, for this brief discussion, let's just say that mental intelligence tends to be objective in a matter of logic and reasoning and deductive thought. Emotional intelligence is very subjective. If the mental is objective, the emotional is subjective. It's very personal. It's I don't expect my feelings to correspond with your feelings. Although we can think like other people, you tend to feel pretty much like yourself. So there's a portal there. And the emotional nature is a way for the mind to access the soul. Isn't that interesting? That the mind really has to access the the emotional nature to find the soul or the higher self or the awareness that stands above and behind or maybe beyond all things. Metaphysics means beyond physics. Above or behind. But you go out through the heart, through emotional intelligence. Develop your mental intelligence all you want. But to know yourself as spirit, you have to begin to develop the emotional intelligence as well as a portal to that which remains when you quiet the mind and calm the emotional nature. Don't you see? If you still the body, quiet the mind, and calm the emotional nature, what remains is a quality of feeling that is not emotional or mental or physical, but a quality of awareness that is Approaching the truth of who you really are. And seven, escape. Well, <laughs> Timothy says, How do I get out of here? This is anesthesiology, whether amateur or professional. Uh, it's uh, eschatology. It's, uh, in my words, it runs the gamut from redemption. How do I get out of here? Well, you have to go to confession and admit you're bad. You have to be confirmed. You have to uh, accept Jesus as your Savior. You have to do good works. So different churches have different tenets, uh, different rules, even within Christianity, about how to get redeemed. Still, the whole idea of redemption or salvation is pretty much limited to the West, to, to Islam, the, to uh, the Jewish uh, religion, uh, Hebrews uh, religion, and um, Christianity. Those three monotheistic religions, uh, the Muslim, the Jew, and the Christian, are those are the only religions that are really interested in the salvation or redemption. Uh, you're bad and you need to get better to approach God stuff. Uh, Eastern philosophy is very different. Chinese philosophy is basically about the organic nature of life, about all things spiritual being part of the one life, and looking to nature a lot. It's rather pagan from a Western view. Uh, that's much of China and Asia, and then the Brahma, uh, the Brahman, Brahmastan, Hinduism, the area of India and Ceylon and Indonesia, uh, where the Hindus uh, hold forth. Their view is rather dramatic. Their religion is about uh, the stage play that is life. Um, You know, Shakespeare even said, all the world is a stage and we're but players with our entrances and our exits. And To the Hindu, life is one big drama. To the Chinese, Confucianism and Taoism, it's uh, basically this organic life uh, that is bigger than any individual uh, or or set of individuals or species, or phylum or class, just the one life. And then the three Western religions of Islam, uh, Judaism, and Christianity, they're about salvation, redemption. How do I get out of here? Um, and so there is, as Leary talks about, the use of the psychedelic drug, um, The use of alcohol, actually alcohol is a sacrament. You might might think it's silly to make tobacco or marijuana or psilocybin a sacrament, but Christians made alcohol a sacrament. So there you go. Uh, Although you're supposed to really, really believe that the priest is turning the wine into blood and the wafer into the body. If you don't believe that that is literally the body and the blood, not just a metaphor or a symbol. You, you, you're not a real Catholic. If you don't believe in the miracle of the Eucharist, you only think that tastes like wine and looks like bread. That's the body and the blood. It's a little creepy and a little weird if you start to question it. But If you question, you're a sinner, and then you got to go to confession and get all clean again, so... There's no room for the mystics. At least they're not burning us at the stake and uh, 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 torturing us, or are they? So um, that's just the briefest of overview of these seven uh, existential questions and questions about existence. And after formulating these, uh, Timothy explains that the purpose of life He believes is spiritual discovery, which for him means to answer these questions and experience, I can't emphasize enough, to have the experience of answering the question or pondering the question, either with your awareness expanded through some psychedelic or, more naturally, through meditation, contemplation, reflection, introspection, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, I wish we had more time to address these because I I like them. I like these questions, and I like the fact that we're addressing it even today. Okay, if you're on the telephone, we've got a bunch of people on the phone. If you'd like to raise your hand, just hit star 2, do that once, because if you do it a second time, it will lower your hand again. I don't see anybody with their hand raised just yet. So we'll go over to the text side and those of you listening on the web who are using um, what in the world is this? Where are my text questions? Hold on, I got some sort of snafu in my browser here. (coughs) Let me uh, open a second browser and see if I can get to these text questions. That's a little odd. You guys will have to forgive me for just a second while I do this. It's funny about this website. My Firefox browser acts one way, and my Safari browser behaves in an entirely different way. Let me go to Moderator Tools, and then I'll click on Questions in here. Yeah, this will take me to your questions. Here we go. Uh, Albert's in Rosemead. He says, I just want to say hello from uh, Rosemead, Albert Garcia. Uh, He says, uh, what do you feel about our president? Is he the same as all politicians, or should the nation expect a difference? A little off-topic, but that's okay. I'm okay with you asking off-topic questions. And I have mixed feelings about Barack. Uh, I'm about 90 percent positive, but I'll just simply say that as much as I believe in the man that is Barack, uh, politics has to be about policy. And I I don't think we should uh, make of Barack Obama or any politician uh, a hero, because that's what the republicans did around george bush and ronald reagan and then we have a political culture of personalities rather than policies and ideologies and what's important i think in understanding any president or any politician is what drives them and what motivates them and i really believe that barack obama is in many ways a realist that's why he tries to unite in the center, in the left and right, frustrating for those of us who are lefties, um, and also be as inclusive as possible, even though his agenda is clearly progressive. And um, he, he spoke to that in the, um, I want to call it the State of the Union Address, but the, the address that he did to the Joint um session of Congress um, this past week, uh, talking about social justice and referring to the Kennedy line about health care being the great unfinished business of the land. And we can argue about appropriate levels of government in our lives, but it's ridiculous with the money and the resources that this country has to allow sick people to suffer and die. And that those who seem to be most in favor of that identify themselves as being motivated by their born-again Christianity. It's like they're so concerned with the unborn, the rights of the unborn, but seemingly unconcerned about the rights of people once they have been born and are sick and dying and going into bankruptcy. Nobody should lose their house because they're sick. Nobody should die because they can't afford health care in a country that can fight two wars simultaneously and, and give billions of dollars in subsidies, unwarranted subsidies, to drug companies, uh, the executives of insurance companies making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Uh, um, I found that the CEO of United Health made a cool $124.8 million in 2005 how do you earn over a million dollars a month? Uh, I'm sorry, over $10 million a month. How do you earn $10 million a month? Right? What is he doing? What is he contributing? He's the CEO of an insurance company. 30% of the money we pay for insurance goes to insurance companies and they don't provide a thing. They're just a collection agency. It's it's obscene on the surface of it it's it's corrupt and it's unjust and, and that's what I care about is the motives behind the president and to me that's more important than how about Barack isn't he cool I think he is cool I think he's very cool but um, I'm trying to stand above that in my politics by the way I really want to recommend the movie to you guys that my wife and I ordered from Netflix and watched it last night called A Face in the Crowd. Have any of you guys seen A Face in the Crowd? It's a, um, it's a movie from 1957 starring Andy Griffith, who you probably know from Mayberry, right? But before the Andy Griffith show in Mayberry and Barney and all of that, uh, Andy Griffith did several movies, and one was this, The Face in the Crowd. And what put us onto it was Keith Oberman keeps referring to Glenn Beck as Lonesome Roads. Well, if you want to find out what that means and why Oberman's calling Glenn Beck Lonesome Roads, you got to rent this movie, A Face in the Crowd. Uh, if you don't like it, I'll pay the $3 that <laughs> it costs to rent the darn thing it's incredible um, I, I wish I had the time to talk about it but I just wanted to take a moment to mention it to you don't miss it if you're at all concerned about what's happening today especially this rally in Washington yesterday uh, or that uh, Ku Klux Klansman from South Carolina Uh, calling the president a liar in a joint session of Congress. That's the Klan, folks. That's not the Republican Party. The Klan is pretty much all that's left of the Republican Party, and um, I think we should know that. And uh, without getting off onto a tirade about Fox News and
1: multinational corporations
0: and fascism, I'll just leave it at that. Let's see, Said in France says, hello Michael, this is Saeed from Lyon, or Lyon, France, he said I used to listen to you when you were at KPFK, still enjoying to hear you now, you are like a friend sitting together in the living room, expanding our consciousness throughout the universe and reminding humanity of our uh, oneness, our common oneness. Uh, i hope i'll meet you and share a gathering one day well thank you Said, from Lyon, france very nice to hear from you especially this late at night in france it's got to be about uh, i don't know 12 in the morning there thank you very much for being with us carol pastel is with us from la habra she says hello michael hello carol as always robert Fiegel and irvine aloha michael great topic says I recently passed up a great opportunity after some uh self introspection I now realize that the real reason for passing up the opportunity was fear of the unknown. The real problem I'm now having is regret uh for not going forward and missing out on the chance for new growth and experience in my life. What is the best way to overcome this regret? Uh thanks for the great class. Have a magical week of peace and thank you, Robert. Um, the great. Uh, this is an easy one, actually. The the best way to overcome regret is to release it, uh, to let it go. You don't have to conquer it; just drop it. And the way to drop it is to identify it as more of the same. It's just more fear of the unknown. So the regret is the new pattern that your brain has invented to prevent you from risking a new opportunity you realize that turning your back on it initially was fear of the unknown hold on i got to extend this class a little bit here I'm going to get cut off I may get cut off anyway this doesn't seem to want to extend to me but um, if I do get cut off my apologies, aloha <laughs> hopefully I can stay here for a minute Um, and now it's just being called by your brain regret, but it's still fear of the unknown. Uh, So call it what it is. It's not just regret. It's more fear of the unknown, more of the same. Face it. Now you can put it down and take that risk. All right? In Tucson, Arizona, Lorelei is with us. And, oh, I guess it did work good. I guess I'm going to be okay now. In Tucson, Lorelei says, Aloha, Michael. I think they said it well in the movie, What the Bleep Do We Know, when they pointed out that having Jesus die for our sins would rob us of the growth we gain from the experience of making the mistakes in our lives. Peace and love to you and Doreen. All right. Um, I'm not big on the idea of sin anyway, um, but if you reframe it uh, to what people call sin is not some deliberate um, ignoring of God's will, but just a mistake that we make or a temptation because we're weak. You know, Even Christ was tempted, so how do you explain that? It's part of the nature of coming into human form, that uh, we're tempted by the ego, by the lower nature, by fear. That's what evil is. It's fear. <laughs> Robert nailed it. Uh, regret. Evil. Fear. It's what you don't know. It's ignorance. Uh, Bert's with us in Honolulu. says, Hi, Michael. Keep up the good work. All the best to you and Doreen. Thank you, Bert. Uh, Bert was not able to join us last Saturday in Hilo, but I want to say again that a week ago yesterday we had a wonderful seminar on the big island, Hilo, uh, on the east side, north shore of the Big Island of Hawaii. Hawaii, Hawaii is uh, five to seven islands, depending on how you add it up. And the the easternmost island, the big one, is bigger than all the others put together. And although I live in Maui, Bert lives in Oahu. Uh, we had a real good time over in Hilo. We're going to do that again. Probably we'll do a seminar in Honolulu. And uh, I know we're going to do one in Maui. These are little half-day seminars. I'll be sure to let you guys know far in advance when we do the week-long next spring or next summer, 2010. Start getting excited now because we're going to do a four- or five-day transformational seminar here in Maui. And I want you to know about that. Up in Apple Valley, Don is with us. He says... uh, Powerful class, powerfully moving class. Thank you, Michael. And hola to you and Doreen. Thanks, Don. And in Albuquerque, Donna is with us, and she says, I love the analogy of the IQ and the EQ. So true. Keep up the good work. Enjoy your workshops. Thanks, and thank you, Donna. Thank you very much. Donna is also, like many of you, a subscriber at FocusedPassion.com. This is a premium audio program that my partner Steve Snyder and I do every week. And um, I really want to encourage you to listen to it. We have six programs that you can get for free on the website. If you just leave your email and your first name, we'll send you six full programs, premium audio programs. These are studio-quality programs. Compelling conversations, that's the way Steve and I describe it, compelling conversations and guided meditations, too, on personal development, a lot of practical tools and techniques. And If you find this class to be, oh, very esoteric but not very practical in helping you with your daily life, what you want is the premium program as well. And that's how we do all of this other stuff, this free webinar every Sunday and all of the free articles and the newsletter. What do we ask for that? A donation of 99 cents a week. three ninety six a month at focusedpassion.com. That's pocket change. If you can do that for us, that would help us stay ad-free in all of these programs and
1: allow us
0: to I mean, I'll tell you right now, we we have a lot of very happy, satisfied subscribers and contributors, but not enough to pay for what we're doing. And to be able to grow this and to do more promotion and more publicity and even more free stuff, and to keep it all free from advertising, that's the way to do it. Kick 99 cents our way at dot com, Okay. And if you want that program and you don't have ninety nine cents a week, would you let me know? I mean, I'm not going to tell anybody you don't have three ninety six a month. I, I will give it to you for free if you really can't pay the four dollars a month. Send me an email, mb at theagelesswisdom.com. Say I'm unemployed. I'm between jobs. It may sound silly, but I don't have four dollars a month. I'll hook you up, right? But primarily, what that program is for, is the rest of us who can find the four dollars to support this effort. So this webinar is always going to be free, but it's part of a much bigger mission, and we'd like you to know about our allied website, focusedpassion.com. The W's dot focused with an E D, focusedpassion.com. All right. Well. Um, Checking the um, telephone side of things, I want to say hi to our phone callers, I see a bunch of people listening on the telephone, and it looks like some of you are doing both, (laughs) you're on the phone and on the web. Uh, I'm going to hire some ringers, I think, to, uh, in the future, uh, talk on the telephone, because I think somebody's got to break the ice here, you're all just too bashful. When I first started this feature two or three months ago, Uh, Carol called from La Habra, and that was far out, and uh, Dr. Kev called from Amsterdam, and we put him on on the air, so to speak. Uh, I can unmute you guys one at a time. That's what it's about. I can now have the ability to do that, but if you're too bashful, we'll just stay with the text messages for now and in the future. Uh, maybe somebody will break the ice. So that's about all the time we have. Uh, we usually end with a little visualization exercise, so let's do that. Let me ask you just to, even if only briefly, close your eyes. Take a nice, slow, deep breath. And create and sense a feeling of letting go, as you do. And the second and a third nice, slow deep breath, feel the letting go imagine in your mind's eye your eyes are closed now, right? but in your mind's eye I want you to imagine being in a beautiful place a forest a meadow beautiful isolated beach maybe high in a mountain or deep in a valley and it's such a beautiful place that you allow my voice to go with you but hear also the sounds of this place the, the birds singing the wind in the trees the splashing of a little stream nearby perhaps a waterfall or a little cascade of water remember times that you were this far away from the city into nature and feel safe and relaxed and simply reflect upon the questions that we've asked today from this model offered by Dr. Leary called the seven tongues of God. And consider the power of life and the power granted to you to be in this life, to be effective, to be aware, to accomplish things including your own growth. Consider the power behind it all. And is there a plan? Consider the question of life, of this power manifesting as life, part of which is the human being and includes the awareness of the human to reflect upon his her thoughts and feelings, to reconsider, to think twice, to wonder again. You have this ability, you have this power. Does life have a plan? Does that plan evolve or unfold? Are we evolving as purveyors of the plan, as those liaisons in form whose job it is to make manifest the plan? Just wonder about it. You don't need to know, just wonder. What is the nature of wondering? What is this ability that I have to know something, to know that I know it, or to believe that I know it, but not really quite know that I know it, and then to wonder even more? Especially when the physical world around you has no more information, and you have to close your eyes and turn within and there you find unbounded information under the question of ego am I the separated self that is so frightened the ego so concerned with survival or am I the awareness that stands above it that comes from love and peace and if so, maybe both things are true. Maybe I'm an ego and an awareness. Maybe I have a separated self and a harmonious self, which is going to be in charge. What about my emotions? Can I understand myself based less on what I think and more about how I feel for I can think like anybody but I only feel like myself which self and what am I going to do to escape the suffering and the pain how do I get out of here do I have to wait till I die to find out what happens then or can I create heaven on earth and do it now The reason to ask these questions in meditation, to wonder, to ponder, to reflect, to contemplate the reflection of reality in your mind as reflected by your mind to peer into that inner mirror is to consider that the mind with which you search for meaning and purpose the mind that looks for God just may be part and parcel of the mind with which God creates you And that all that appears to be separation is but an illusion. And that feeling safe and relaxed, at peace, and to feel love as conscious awareness, to be aware that love is consciousness to be conscious of love as so much more than an emotion but rather like an electromagnetic force that expands in the direction of your attention is to set an agenda for this kind of introspection And even if you don't get answers, there is development in the wondering. And every little piece is helpful. Trusting your first impression, and you won't need to tell anybody what comes up, but trusting your first impression, I want you to watch and listen and feel what comes up when I ask you to repeat to yourself you fill in the blank most truthfully I am fill in the blank most truthfully I am and whatever comes up whatever word or phrase Tell yourself that'll be easy to remember and worth exploring in the next meditation you do. And telling yourself one more time how easy that'll be to remember, take a slow breath, hold as you peek, and then exhale and create and sense a letting go feeling as you open your eyes Wide awake, alert, refreshed, rested, back in the room, feeling fine. And uh, let me thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. We went long today, but it was a deep topic. And uh, by the way, I really appreciate any suggestions you have. Not that we're running out of stuff to talk about, but I really would like uh, some suggestions, some input from you guys about topics we can discuss in the future. You can always email me at my initials at the Ageless Wisdom. That would be M B like Michael Benner, Mary Baker. MB at the Ageless Wisdom dot com. Send me an email. I want to hear from you. MB at the Ageless dot com. Say hi. Tell me who you are. Tell me where you are. Tell me how long you've been listening. What you love about this. What disappoints you about it. Um Uh, topics you'd like us to cover in the future, okay, and again, if at all possible, everybody can go to FocusedPassion.com and get the free stuff, right? So put into your browser with the ED, Focused, the W's dot FocusedPassion.com, Leave an email and a first name and get the free stuff. Six free programs. They run almost an hour, 45 minutes to an hour each. They include meditation, studio quality, Steve and I in conversation, not a lecture. You're eavesdropping. We've done the work for you. Combined, we have 70 years of research into personal and spiritual development. And for 99 cents, you can help support this whole program. This webinar here as well, all the free ebooks and articles that we have, the newsletter, the archives, the blogs, help us out if you can. At 99 cents a week, and if you want these programs and you really cannot afford 396 a month, let me know. I'll hook you up. I, we just need some way to stay ad-free. Uh, people want us to put ads, and it's very tempting. They're they 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 want to advertise here, we'd rather not, so you know together, Steve and I have found a way to monetize this till now, and most of it almost all of it comes from sustainers subscribers, just like k p f k just like we did in l a so that's all every once in a while somebody wants to give us more, and that's cool too, but 99 cents a week 396 a month it's easy to unsubscribe you can control your account with the buttons right there on the web you can turn it on and off anytime you want and you can you can listen on the built-in player on that website to your free programs or send them to iTunes or use your browser it's it's so easy we've really simplified it and with that thank you for listening thanks for being here I hope you'll join us next week be gentle love life and take care of each other. Aloha from Maui. This is Michael Benner.